Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. My guest today is Professor James Wepsel. He's a professor of philosophy at Villanova University, where he holds the Augustinian Endowed Chair and is the director of the Augustinian Institute. He holds a BA from Princeton University and a PhD from Columbia University. His research focuses on Augustine and Platonism, moral psychology, and the metaphysics of evil, mysticism, and mythology. In addition to numerous articles on Augustine, he is the author of Augustine and the Limits of Virtue, Augustine, A Guide for the Perplexed, City of God, A Critical Guide, which he edited, and Parting Knowledge, Essays After Augustine. Professor Wetzel, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, happy to do so. So maybe I'll start with some basics and I'll, I'll keep this brief so we can kind of move fluidly from one thing to the next. So um, it's hard to believe, but I've been teaching for about 35 years now and largely at two institutions, um, a liberal arts college in upstate New York, Colgate University, where I was in the then the philosophy and religion department, they since parted ways. In fact, they parted ways the year I left for Colgate to Villanova, where, where I basically had the second part of my career. Um, and I'm in the philosophy department at Villanova, and my particular charge as the Augustinian chair in the thought of St. Augustine, that's really a mouthful, um, is to find some way to um, situate Augustinian thought and tradition within the the purview of a philosophy department, and and primarily, for me, that's meant um, an emphasis when I was teaching the undergraduates on philosophy and religion and the medieval philosophy. To really, I see Augustine as um, at, at Villanova as a figure in the in late antiquity, and how and and also as an invitation to think a little bit about how we uh, construct. Um, traditions of philosophy. I, I think my general philosophical views, my general philosophical interests, I mean, this isn't very informative, but it's true. Um, I'm really interested in just what's out there. You know, what is reality? How do we know it? How do we relate to it? Is it even really even a matter of relating? And one thing that I um, have resisted throughout my uh, time as a graduate student, an undergraduate, a professor, is to be too confident of the distinction between a religious and a secular point of view when it comes to truth seeking. Uh, and maybe I'll just say a little bit about uh, my acad one aspect of my academic background that I think m may be telling. Um, but I'm trying to get at self-knowledge, and I believe that's the hardest virtue possible, so I'm probably not focusing on what I need to focus on. But I was an undergraduate at Princeton in the early 80s, uh, and that was the Princeton of Richard Rorty and Saul Kripke in philosophy and um, the very young Jeff Stout and Victor Preller and Malcolm Diamond in the religion department. And I tend to go back and forth uh, between these two departments. And the intellectual atmosphere of both philosophy in the philosophy department and philosophy of religion in the religion department uh, we were, it was still very much under the, the aegis of, um, of positivism. Positivism had uh, 
finally collapsed under the weight of itself referential inconsistencies. Uh, I mean, the idea really being that something, a proposition means something to the extent to which you have a definitive idea of how to verify its truth. Seems rather reasonable, but if you meant that as, a, if you really want to use that as a cudgel against what you think of as metaphysical, religious, and and, and ethical and aesthetic beliefs, it, it doesn't work so well. But it was really, nevertheless, um, more of an ethos than a doctrine that was really affecting um, my 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 uh, my study of, of philosophy. And I think of two works in, in conjunction with one another that I think had an impact on my self-understanding. Uh, Flew, Anthony Flew and, and Alistair McIntyre, this is really going back, um, their, the edit, the, their edition of New Essays in Philosophical Theology, which was in the wake of John Wisdom's famous essay, Gods. And um, that that volume really was, in many ways, a manifesto of a certain kind of positivism within the religious life, uh, within the study of, of philosophy of religion. And at the other end of this period was um, Faith and Rationality, the volume of essays that uh, Walterstorff, Nicholas Walterstorff, and Alman Planica came out in 19. It really is an, as a critique of positivism, as a way of, of making religious truths. Um, uh, you know, uninteresting or unstudyable. I mean, they may be very interesting, but that they're put outside the realm of inquiry. And so it was really, um, you know, I, my question as an undergraduate is like, if we're going to dismiss certain kinds of truth seeking on the basis that we don't um, have a clear enough verification procedures, um, why are we making religious belief often so stupid? You know, if they really are connected up with sort of some of the deep waters of our human psychology, we shouldn't expect the verification tradition conditions to be so clear. And and uh, often I think of philosophy as a struggle as much with meaning interpretation as verification and truth. And so I um, I got into Augustine in, in part because I felt like I was given a classic, this is the Confessions, a classic of Western civilization um, that I was supposed to just, you know, either dismiss or embrace without thinking much about whether I knew anything about God talk and what that could possibly mean. Uh, I really felt like I, I, I didn't and, and that I would, and, that, and it was worth wrestling with Augustine because he was, I think, a cipher for the Western traditions growing distinction between philosophical inquiry and religious reverence. Not all cultures make that distinction, and I was very suspicious of it. And so that's really um, my sort of post-positivistic intellectual situation with a kind of curiosity about things that just were canonized uh, is what I think first drew me about to Augustine. Um, there are other things, there are other aspects of my interest in Augustine we can talk about, but let me, let me just stop here so I'm not running on too long. No, that's helpful. A very unique sort of time to come into this world if you're coming in sort of as that positivism collapses and uh, yeah, a very unique place if you're coming in to Princeton at that time. How did you get, just to get the bio clear, how did you get from Princeton to, you said Colgate? And then how long were you at, at Colgate? Sort of, how did you go from these questions to, I'm going to do philosophy in a 
well, I don't know if you thought of it as an Augustinian way, but in a way that takes religious questions seriously. How did you work from from those sort of undergraduate questions and convictions through to, say, doctoral work and then um, into sort of establishing your research at Colgate? Yeah, so my undergraduate work was in religion and philosophy at Princeton. Um, and yeah, I think certainly I, I had a lot of influences, but I, I think Stout's, Jeffrey Stout's historicism was really important. That um, you the, that one had to pay attention to the evolution of a language of inquiry and a language of politics, a language of ethics, and not imagine that we all speak through the same concepts in the same way across time. And I ended up doing my graduate work at Columbia, um, working primarily with uh, with Wayne Proudfoot, who was a marvelous um, advisor. And, and of course, Wayne was well known for his book, Religious Experience. And I did the index on that one, by the way, when I was a graduate student. So that may be my greatest claim to fame. Um, <laughs> but Wayne, um, I, I think, was very interested in the social sciences. He had he had he had gone he had he had a PhD from uh, from Harvard Divinity School. But I think he had lost, um, I, I don't, I, I think his existential interests in Christianity were, were, were more intellectual. And he, his argument, um, his, his description of how religious experience works relative to religious language is that he, he alerted us to be careful of the way in which language um, already builds in a certain guard against inquiry. Uh, and I took that very seriously. Um, but I think ultimately, um, I'm more convinced than Wayne is that one can come to fairly robust notions of reality, truth, through the study of what both people would identify as religious texts. I think there's a there was a skepticism in Wayne's way of proceeding that I think um, I didn't share. When I was at Columbia, there wasn't a great deal of interest in philosophy or religion, and 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 necessarily in going taking a deep dive in Augustine, but I felt like I had to do that, that that Augustine was um, a place where we start. I, I guess what really struck me is like when we're, you know, it's almost as if in traditional canonizations of of, of a philosophical narrative, um, it's almost as if Plato and Aristotle and the, cla and, the and classical figures, Hellenistic figures, um, were somehow secular relative to right. an Augustine who, because of the way that he talks about God, all of a sudden it makes a difference whether one has a confessional commitment um, to the study of Augustine. But when we read Plato, um, let's say as apology, we're not worried so much about whether or not we share Socrates' belief in the God Apollo's existence. Um, and so I wanted to understand better how the ideal of the, well, let me put it this way, how the ideal of the saint and how the ideal of the sage diver, diverges. Augustine is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a gigantic figure here because of the way that he looms so large in patristics. Um, I can't think of, in many, it's, it's not so much of an exaggeration to say in many ways he invents Western Christianity. Well, he invents a lot of the, at least the psychology of redemption is very much um, uh, beholden, uh, you know, to his genius. Yet try to put him within the narrative of the philosophical tradition, and you run into the problem. This is to put it crudely, but I still think it's the case. You've suddenly entered into the so-called age of faith, mm -hmm. and 
and the way that that works is that you have to just accept um, foundational true religious truths as a place to start and maybe and maybe that's congenial to you personally maybe it's not but there isn't a lot of um there isn't a lot of appreciation from just how much complicated inquiry um, Augustine really does in his exegetical works and his polemical works in his more um, confessional works. Uh, and so, I mean, and, and as far as the Colgate story, um, I, I mean, I, I started teaching at Colgate. I still had a fair, a, a fair chunk of my dissertation to, to write. It was back in the days where you could still, you could actually get a job and just have your dissertation not com completed uh, uh, um, you know, without, without any kind of remainder. Um, uh, I, it was my first experience of a liberal arts college and um, of, a, of a joint philosophy and religion department. Mm. So I was, you know, having to go from one departmental arrangement to another. And it was great teaching undergraduates. And that's where I really learned how to teach. Um, with a Villanova, um, <clears throat> I, I think uh, it, it gave me a chance to, I, I think, do more do a different kind of approach to Augustine, demedievalizing him for a while. So, the, so getting some distance from from the age of of faith notions of of his work. Um, but also, I would say in in um, at Villanova, uh, the the two most important experiences that sort of shaped my sense as an intellectual and as a person was teaching in a PhD in a PhD program, which I oh, wasn't. Yeah. And, and and also teaching at um, in Villanova's college program in the state penitentiary, uh, which I've done for about ten years, and and that gave me a sense of just how much this inherited languages we have a, a philosophy can really be a very powerful way to give people um, a chance to articulate their experience. Uh, and make it intelligible to others. Say more about that teaching in the penitentiary. How did that affect you and your work? I'm always yeah, very in intrigued by these these courses that, that go on penitentiaries. So many of my professors say, oh, that's like the best work we do, or that's the most interesting things we do. So how did that come back to affect what you were thinking about or working on, if it did at all? Yeah, no, it did. It had it had a, a a great deal of impact on how I saw myself as a teacher of philosophy. Um, so Villanova's had a program in well, it it started in the early seventies, um, and it was situated in SCI Greaterford, which was then the for, which was for for many years the largest. Um, state correctional institution in the state of Pennsylvania. The program is now in Phoenix because play uh, Greaterford got shut down. Mm -hmm. And it's important to understand that um, Villanova um, it takes a while. It takes longer than if the the students were on campus. But the end of the uh, the the goalpost of the Villanova program is a is a BA in interdisciplinary studies. So there is an alumni chapter of Villanova BAs actually incarcerated. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, 
for the most part, taught courses that were required of all undergraduates for the BA degree because that's really what was needed most within the within the within Greaterford. And so I taught ethics, um, introduction to philosophy, and courses, and basically there are civilization courses, both ancients and moderns. Um, and I think I came away from it with two, I think, very clear uh, realizations. One is the philosophical tradition doesn't belong to anybody. It's really what a community decides to do with it together. And this was a group of men that were just anxious to um, connect up with something that honored their identity as inquiring, self-reflective, imperfect, <laughs> curious human beings. Um, it's You don't have to motivate discussion within uh, a classroom at Greaterford, you, 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 what your challenge is, is it, is that the professor is to make sure it doesn't get too, um, random in the, in, in the, in the conversations is that we, the class loses the thread of, of an argument or, or a point of view. My other perception that I came to is that, you know, uh, the American criminal justice system isn't very just. I mean, this is not to say that everybody in the in the in the prisons is saint. That's that would be ridiculous, and the the men I've talked to would wouldn't put up with that BS. But um, it's also true that it's hard to you know the the the, the capacity of uh, men in within these institutions. I say men just because I haven't had that's been my only experience. I haven't been inside a um a state prison for 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 women um it's it's hard to imagine it seems to me the degree to which they find themselves in one another um it's despite the prison not because of it, mm. because of it. yeah that's very helpful so you get to villanova and i mean you're you're in a philosophy department i'm sure the jump from princeton to columbia to Colgate was significant going to an integrated program. What was the jump from Colgate to Villanova like, especially if you are already interested in Augustinian questions coming into a deeply Augustinian community and environment? And how does philosophy work at Villanova? The philosophy department is large and, and plural. Uh, in, and, I'll, and I'll qualify the pluralism in a minute a little bit. Um, so I was recruited to teach at Villanova, uh, and, you know, I, it was primarily a search that was coming through the Augustinian Institute at Villanova. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the primary people involved in the search were both professors of philosophy, but the, the chair in Augustinian thought wasn't necessarily tied to philosophy. It, it, it ended up being just because of the way that I uh, approach Augustine. Um, I recognized that I was more or less kind of dropped in on the Villanova philosophy program, so I was going to lay low. 
until I got the uh, sense of the land a bit. Um, but I, but they really were happy for me to hit the ground running, and I and I got involved in the graduate program right away, and it was a friendly place. I think Villanova is in the philosophy department. Um, yeah, there's some um, we're asked to think hard about the relationship between what we do as scholars and intellectuals and teachers and the mission of the university. And the mission of the university includes um, values that it's hard for me to imagine anyone in higher education would deny. <laughs> <laughs> that we, you know, basically, you know, truth, beauty, um, the good, justice, um, inquiry, <clears throat> but then, <clears throat> then a respect for for the various ways in which we come to these higher desires and struggle with these higher desires. There is also within the mission state a recognition that Villanova is a Catholic Augustinian place that. Um, that honors the revelation of God through the figure of Jesus Christ. Right now, um, in the philosophy department, I you know I, I I've been there now, I think it is eighteen my eighteenth year, so I've seen it shift over time, and um, I think there's a common interest within in the department to do philosophical work that has some meaningful relationship to uh, political, social, and moral culture. Uh, and the more concrete, the better. But it's, I think, nevertheless, it's hard to be concrete in, uh, in, in the context of academic philosophy, try as one might. Um, I think that uh, there, the, the department has shifted in the graduate program from kind of an interest in postmodern metaphysics, critiques of metaphysics, to uh, political, social philosophy. I'm not saying oh, really. we have with a with a with, with some due deference to the to the importance that history of philosophy and continental philosophy has had in the department. The question of I think a lot about the question of you know how religious interest commitments play out in a philosophy department at at a Catholic institution, and I mean the short answer is it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean there, there there's certainly friendships across um, lightly drawn lines, but I think sometimes lines. Nonetheless, um, I mean, there is a distinction, I think. I, I think there, there are like graduate students who are in, who, who are inclined. To, everybody seems to be inclined to, to do work that has some relevance to the global crises we face, uh, right. particularly the dialectical breakdowns that seem to be haunting human beings and, and denying us the politics that may have some chance of healing our relationship to the earth. Um, whether one does that with explicit faith commitments or not is, is not an easy topic. I've never got the sense being in Villanova that there is that there is a, 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 an enforced party line that's either religious or anti-religious. Mm. 
but I do think what what to struggle with Augustine is like so he 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 says when he's 18 that he he comes across Cicero's Hortensius. Yeah. It changes his affect about philosophy, and he's a philosopher now. Yeah, um, right. Um, hard to believe that the 18 year old changed that much. Uh, but he also says at the time that he, you know, the one thing that was missing, and I guess there's a good historical reasons why it was missing, is that Cicero doesn't mention Christ. It's like, well, right. there you go. <laughs> there's that time thing that's haunting you again. Um, and I think Augustine's a is a is a peculiar figure in his appeal can be to very conservative temperaments and very liberal temperaments. But how do you get the I'm I'm all about unfettered inquiry into the philosophical life, which is more important than any faction, but I'm not giving up my belief in Jesus, which right. is connected to a community. <laughs> it isn't just a free feeling belief. And so Villanova, I think, as a as, as a basically liberal Catholic institution struggles with this. We want to be open to everything out there that's human. Mm-hmm. And yet we have a specific identity as a Catholic institution. But, you know, that identity within Catholicism is also, you know, there, there's more than one way of doing it. So I think more generally, the struggle of 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 honoring your particular loves at the same time that you're looking to expand your point of view and enhance your openness to other kinds of loves without getting rid of the your, uh, dishonoring your particular loves is is it's very hard but very necessary and i think villanova is a place where i've become more self-conscious of this issue than i was when i was teaching at colgate that makes a lot of sense and certainly comes through in the essays I've, I've been reading the past week or so these after augustine essays and there is definitely a a distinct wrestling with this what is philosophy and theology um that maybe it was just the scope of some of your previous work but i i feel like that comes through in a very palpable way in a very helpful way for me yeah. doing philosophy on augustine so thank you for that Sure. Thank you for reading them. (laughs) Of course, they've been really good. Um, I didn't have them as a a whole collection until recently. I've seen bits and pieces. Thankfully, I have have your your first book from, I think, from undergrad. But if I'm not mistaken, it's out of print now and very expensive. Well, Augustine and the Limits of Virtue, that was published in 92 which is several worlds um, in the in the distant past now. Yeah, it's a shame. A professor of mine gave it to me in undergrad, and he just said, if you want the best thing on Augustine and the will over his lifetime, it's this. So it holds up. I wish it'd come back into print, considering how easy it is to print books these days. I think it's, I think it's print on demand, but it's, but okay. it's expensive. Um, yeah. Because it's... Yeah, you know they're not they're not warehousing large stocks of of the of Augustine and Limits of Virtue. Right. Surprise. Good. I want to get into talking about that and these essays, but you mentioned one last thing on sort of these meta questions, and that's just where in the world 
in Jesus and the incarnation with these wrestlings. Uh, that was something that kind of surprised me reading through a lot of these is they are distinctly Christian forays into Augustine. And I struggle myself with this sort of question of how much do I say Augustine leads us into a dissatisfaction or a paradox here that, yeah, he will he'll turn to Christ for these things. But how do we do we just leave that in the sort of philosophical tone and yeah. analyze the questions and options or, you know, basically how far do you do you follow Augustine in finding Christ? Because Christ becomes the answer for so many of these problems. We're gonna ask just sort of how do you how have you reasoned through that as opposed being at at a distinctly Catholic university may give you more freedom, but personally have you wrestled through how far to follow Augustine in his own movements, not from philosophy to theology, but through. So um, th- this is where I'm, I want to go back to this. I'm going to basically give a gloss on this meta issue. Like what, 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 what did truth look like before we became mm-hmm. so confident in our religion, religious secular distinction? And w- what I resist about the invocation of Christ in some of the scholarship on Augustine, which can really come out of very specific devotional traditions, um, is Christ is, becomes this deus ex, deus ex machina, is that we yeah. can't figure out like you know how we can possibly have a unified personality, so Jesus, help us. Um, I think that... Um, Religious revelations or the ones that sustain traditions over the time are likely to hold important truths. Um, I don't think I think like the Christians are a caretaker of the revolution of, of the revelation of God through Christ. They they don't own it. Right. And it, it's I it, again, I, I'd be a little bit careful as that that it's to take it as an answer to something. It's more like a framing of how we understand the way a question can be asked. Like I, so let, let me try to be specific about this um, in relationship to Augustine. Um, uh, I think one way of putting the, the revelation in, 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 in a work that's not read by other than Augustine, fanatical Augustine scholarship, De Predestinatione Sanctorum, on the predestination of the saints, a late work considered to be a grumpy Augustine that who wrote it. He says something r- rather, um, pro- well, extremely profound about the humanity of God in Christ. He said that there wasn't any particular virtues that Jesus of Nathan possessed that entitled him to be the um, to have such an intimate connection, in fact, a unity with the only begotten Son of God. Um, and one way of phrasing that insight is that the the intimacy between divine and human is does not require the human part to be supersized. Right turn into a special repository of virtue that we can be fully human at the same time that we have 
an intimacy with reality itself. And that um, that is going to have implications for how we imagine um, uh, human inquiry to to go. Um, and I, here I'm 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 often find myself um, thinking about the contrast between two ideals of absolute life, immortal life, life free from death, that I think are intimately connected but they don't seem to be completely compatible and i generally play out my um awareness of these two paradigms through augustine's platonist psychology and, and i can say something about that in a minute but let me just say what the ideals are yeah. so the tree of knowledge i think is pulling together two perspectives and, and I'll and I'll put it in sort of folkloric terms because I the Adam Adam even the serpent is it, it's many things. One of the things is it is a folktale, and and one perspective on the the tree of knowledge is from the sky god from above, um, and that basically that one is like you don't want to you don't want to bite into this knowledge, which I think is the knowledge of of being of the earth, being born. Uh, because if you do, you're going to have to face death, and that's going to be very difficult. And I tend to think of the the tree of of knowledge as separate as as something dangerous that has to be kept distinct from the tree of life, as connected with, not identical to, a certain kind of perfectionist energy in human striving, including the striving to know, where the 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 aim is to participate in what has never been other than what it is that is changeless that is perfect and that it has what it needs to have um, it doesn't need more it doesn't need less it's the part of us that wants the final answer to things um, the final condition of our bodies the final shape of our life and mm -hmm. this perfectionism is very profound um, I think it gets represented in 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 western modernist best modern western philosophy and the ascendancy of logic and mathematics is the language of truth where like once you get it you get it there's no there's no there, there's no ambiguity that you have to deal with um the other paradigm which suggests that there's a unity at least in the root systems between the tree of knowledge and tree of life is that life is 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 metamorphotic <laughs> The way eternal life happens is it's constantly life constantly reinvents itself and it does it in a radical enough way that it ties uh, the experience of mortal life to 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 mortality mm -hmm. to the possibility of death um i i so the, the that's the serpent's perspective in the folktale is that like um that this that life isn't life that's tied up with death isn't really death um, and so the, the 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 impulse to um, to 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 look at the perfection of knowledge less as getting to arriving at a point of um, non-revisability, but as always being aware of the way in which we're learning a new language, uh, is I think Augustine's where it, it, this is this is what Augustine struggles with. Um, and um, I think one way to um, 
to play this out is just to look very carefully at the psychology of the desires that we bring to our desire for well for for knowledge but i think more broadly for for life uh mm. itself and uh, i i think and plato uh, certainly i think was aware of this is that we 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 tend to default to the notion of desire that's appetitive um right so which is an ambiguously perfectionist desire because an appetite simply wants to be satisfied and once it's satisfied it's it goes away until it doesn't then it comes back um but so the if you if you tended to think of philosophy through an appetitive lens then you're going to be constantly thinking that human life is a search for wholeness that that is currently missing right um another way that's but that's not the other that's not the only desire we have we have the desire not simply to be whole to be distinctive mm -hmm. and, and this is the tendency to think of philosophy as a contest that you win or lose um okay, what, is, what do you mean can you just clarify what do you mean by a desire to be distinctive so i'm um, i'm i'm playing out a a, a a kind of a vision of of the psychology that's coming out of book four of the of the republic that i think is certainly shaped the way i understand augustine's psychology of redemption so i think of the you know plato doesn't ultimately believe that the soul is literally in parts but the tripartite soul that described in four are three different ways of individuation there's the desire which inc inclines me to see myself as partial and needing to be fulfilled that's the appetitive side there's a side of me that wants that 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 wants me to be me and not someone else that's okay. that's the that's the individuating part of the soul it's the engine of tragedy um it's the part of us that wants to be distinctive against something else that's actually where the perfectionism of the soul ultimately um gets the most obvious um hearing and it's it's a very noisy and dramatic part of the soul and then i think the quiet part uh is the part that wants to be rather than not be <laughs> um mm. which is for for plato calls it the um the, the logisticon the part of us that knows how to talk that knows how to use logos um and Augustine is really well aware of the complexity, the internal complexity of his own desire for truth. Right. Um, and where I, I'm thinking like, you know, what really became clear to me by the time I started teaching at Villanova, when I wrote Augustine in the, in the, in the, in the Limits of Virtue, um, I was really fascinated by the way in which contemporary theory of action could illuminate aspects of Augustine and presumably aspects of his philosophical theology could illuminate the contemporary debate. Um, I was young and very fascinated with just the way philosophical authority gets drawn. So, so there was a part of me that's like, if I could show the, the, you know, that Augustine and Harry Frankfurt can hang out together, you know, wouldn't that be a kind of legitimating move? Yeah. Um, I, I don't regret doing that. I, I, I'm not terribly interested in continuing with that line of, uh, of work. I really think of Augustine as an important moment uh, or a source of inspiration within the evolution of, of wisdom traditions. And I think of Platonism as a wisdom tradition. 
and and where I and and I say to my students is like there's a difference between being wise and knowing. You can know lots mm-hmm. of you can be terribly wise, not be terribly wise. You can have certain kind of wisdoms and not have a lot of expertise to show for it. But if there is this distinction, then we can't assume that we just innocently desire the truth. We have to face the parts of us that don't want to 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 to, to go in that direction and often but, but often pretend that they do. Um, where this becomes, I think, really profound in Augustine is uh, turns on what makes him, I think, unique as a philosopher of the late antique world. Um, not to deny its Christianity, but to, but to but just to admit that Christianity is part of this ethos. Augustine's thought that sometimes the better part of wisdom is to fall apart, hmm. is to be open to, is to accept the fact that there are reasons for grieving. Yeah. It may be the case that the world where grief is called for isn't the ultimate world, but it's the world that we're in. And um, and Augustine won't take an easy eschatological out when it comes to losses. I mean, he does believe that there, and there, he has a perfectionist side. He does believe that, that, that there will be a point beyond time and history where everything is, in fact, already perfected and fine yeah. beyond loss. Uh, but there's a side to him that says, like, well, no. <laughs> Um, I have to labor in the fields of my humanity in order to understand any possible aspiration for the perfect, for the blessed. I think that's very clear in this little short history of philosophy that you offer as a, a comparison of sort of classical philosophy and current philosophy. You talk about sort of Quartz Guard distinction and, yeah. and where yeah. she posits Augustine, where you would posit Augustine. Um, right. Yeah, right. can you, well, do you mind summarizing that for me of just how would you place Augustine in sort of the history of philosophy? So, um, I mean, he's clearly a juncture point because he yeah. he, he he does and and he has and, and he is connected historically to, to the rise of Christianity as, um, you know, a culture as the culturally dominant religion for for you know quite some quite some time um i see him i as where i place him is is in the is in was within platonism and but platonism as this really as, as a wisdom tradition um which is hard i think to for for it to get much play in the contemporary university that way of looking at him because we're pretty much used to partitioning intellectual problems and issues with what we would tend to assign to the the purview of the therapist <laughs> like the parts of us so there's the part of us that's trying to know in our current intellectual tradition and we, we we've digitized that part of us at this point pretty thoroughly and there's and there's all the stresses and the anxieties and the complexities and the transformations and the changes and the aging um, that gets funneled out as if it were just like a side issue within within um, the history of philosophy. So I can see Augustine is um, doing a couple of things. Uh, 
he does give us a way of um, struggling with the truths of which Christianity has been the caretaker in a way that's not unhelpfully dogmatic. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's August. So the, I mean, the, the other August, the other way in which I kind of got hooked up with Augustine and now I really, I appreciate him more and more um, was through, was through Wittgenstein. Okay. Um, was that the, also an undergrad? Yeah. And in many ways that it was like, uh, I, I took, I was in the sciences to start out with, um, okay. and I ended up taking uh, somewhat without Partly because there, there's a part of me that really is tied to philosophical questions in religion. I, I didn't choose to be that way. I just ended up being that way. And Wittgenstein's use of um, of Augustine at the beginning of the philosophical investigations, uh, where he takes a pa- paragraph Augustine is remembering. Augustine knows it's not a memory. He's remembering, uh, but he, I'll use the word just to save time. Uh, his learning of a first language, and then a, then Wittgenstein kind of plays with this idea um, uh, until we get the end of a basically an Augustine pericope in the investigations, where Augustine talks about a child as if he were a stranger in a foreign land, having to learn a language uh, that he doesn't have yet, and the one that he does have, he can't really communicate directly. So the 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 image that he got from um, Augustine on language is the way in which we we tend within the very within our very imagination for self reflection and knowledge we tend to see one another as largely strangers and that we need to translate. <laughs> our subjectivity to other people to have any shot of having them understand us. Um, I take seriously the fact that, that Wittgenstein just didn't randomly pick that passage to illustrate a theory of language he was going to dismantle for being overly confident about the reliability of referring to objects of meaning. I actually think a, Wittgenstein took seriously that Augustine um, wanted to be a good person, let's put it that way, that was struggling with with his own subjectivity uh, and with his own illusions and delusions. Um, And so going back to the question, where where would I put him? Um, It's so, I I think it's a hard question to answer because the, the university is is the question of how higher values inform evolving communities more than it is the answer. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's perhaps a, a good place to leave him as a place to to raise questions and prod questions in ways that are, I think, helpfully foreign at times to parts of the Platonic tradition and part definitely a lot of our modern tradition. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's good. You mentioned Augustine's emphasis that it's good to fall apart, to grieve, to be dissatisfied, to yeah. to feel slitten too, in a way. 
and I I've noted through these essays definitely more than the limits of virtue a, a keen attention to real problems in your writing that there is is a concern for grief there's a concern for women there's a concern for marriage and freedom which I've I've found very helpful in bringing things down to earth uh, I think you could have very easily said we're going to talk about will and agency and grace forever and in a in a way you do but it doesn't seem like a sort of a, a theoretical ivory tower set of essays these beyond augustine ones and i've i've found that really helpful is there a motivation for that and maybe with that like when you when you write anything or when you write these essays do you have an audience in mind uh i mean i i, I have thought about uh so i I have thought about this. Um, let me say where it comes out of in me. I I I just find um, what we consider, you know, mundane, ordinary reality, to be miraculous. I I, yeah. I think th there's different ways. I mean, you know, there's different ways of, of temperaments that inform a philosophical life. I have friends who basically believe that it all makes sense and they're and they're just liming the you know the the walls with the language of truth. Um, I think that it's not that it doesn't that it's an absolute chaos, but it but it, I, I don't think our relationship to the world is necessarily is fundamentally one of comprehension. So um, in trying to without uh, fetishizing the mystery of an ordinary life, like and I think like give me an example, I just think the fact that you and I can talk and come to some kind of mutual understanding in the words that we use, um, that we can listen to one another, despite, well, I'm sure we have, we both, you know, have complex histories, <laughs> some of which would help, some of which would not, in our listening to one another. I just think that's what philosophy does. Uh, it's, it's less come up with views that, uh, that, that get defended and uh, critiqued and have to be redefended. It's more like, let me describe for you how it looks like from my point of view. Mm. And I'm going to give up the idea that I'm necessarily the expert <laughs> about what yeah. my point of view offers. So my audience is like, really, those of us who who, who, who are in, can't do much with the partitioning of, of, the, of the intellectual life before we even start, uh, who I and actually Joshua, let me put it this way. This is I've become more aware. I actually think that one of the most undervalued mediums of truth in the philosophical life is the imagination. Okay. So, now the imagination is terrifyingly bad when it's motivated by fear. It's amazingly ingenious when it's motivated by love and openness. So, like I'll give you an example. Like I want to be the sort of I want to have the sort of audience that doesn't mind me going on about angels, hmm. even though I'm not necessarily saying like, yes, they're they're, they, they, you know, they're the winged creatures that I hang out hung out with last week. I'm not making that kind of a claim, but nor but it, but to say like, oh, is it is it a metaphorical claim? Yeah, I guess it could be if I had more sense of what the literal truth of angels is all about. And Augustine is actually really a lot of fun to um, 
the rest i mean there's some things about him that are that are decidedly unfun but 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 the 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 augustan that i really um i really find fascinating like in the city of god he's got two books uh 11 and 12 that are primarily on angelology and mostly yeah. he's dealing with an issue he can't solve which is why would the mo why would a being that was vastly more interpersonally connected to its itself than human beings are why would they have a terrible rent that was so bad that it 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 settled in for the rest of time and profoundly covered colored the the, the political possibilities of human life and i'm thinking like well I want to think through what he is is trying to get out here without worrying before I even start. Well, do I really believe in angels? Do right. I want? Yeah, and and so it's really it's I'm not I am neither a skeptic nor um, a dogmatic proponent of those beliefs. I do believe that what I try to understand has a truth that I haven't been able to comprehend yet. If it didn't, what am I doing except bullying people into thinking of what I what I imagine the truth to be? Right. So I, I really I, I would love to have an audience of people who want to have a rich connection to religious culture as well as what the culture calls secular culture and and not worry so much about the absoluteness of the distinction. That's good. Helpful. And it's something people can at least engage with. I mean, it's a very Augustinian disposition to say, I'm not really here to teach you. I'm here to walk with you yeah. and ask questions with you. Very well, good. I mean, I had a change of, of, of heart when I was teaching the philosophy of religion course at Colgate. I, I, I set it up as like, you know, the emergence of philosophical modernity, questions of the rationality of religious belief, problem of evil, da-da-da-da-da-da, mm -hmm. usual, the topics that, that I think um, people that call themselves analytic theists do a lot of these days. Um, I'm not against that, I, 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 but I just have a fairly limited attention span for apologetics of some sort. Yeah, it's more of the question, like the question I raised with the students is like, like, like I, I one of the texts I, I did with them was like this, the, uh, the sixth, the, the the sutra of the sixth patriarch of Chan, and I'm thinking like, well, I'm not an expert in in this material, and I can't use even the original languages, like how would we go about as human beings coming to some understanding of wisdom that's highly mediated in terms of the culture the the, the time period um the interests but what what would instead of like throwing up our hands saying would we just need to get the experts in how do we mm -hmm. take responsibility for revelations that are ongoing and to me, that's really um, where the philosophy of religion has a terribly important role to play in the broader economy and ecology of university knowledge. Yeah, well, you've got this great line where you say, it, would it ever occur to anyone to think that if Descartes had been more philosophically inclined, he would have written a confession instead of yeah. a, a meditation? Because if we take the mark of a philosophical genre not to be commitment to the autonomy of reason, but its fidelity to the desire to know, then Augustine might have the better claim. And I just love that as a starting point for what we're yeah. doing. And maybe yeah. maybe you feel the same with much deeper wrestling with 
the will and loves in Augustine than I have. But if Augustine has done anything for me philosophically, it's unsettled my claim to the autonomy of reason. Yeah. I mean, like what I think is remarkable about Descartes, but I think it's remarkable about much of the intellectual work that we do in the in the contemporary university is like, OK, he's he's playing with the device of radical doubt. And the one thing he doesn't think to doubt is his own desire for the truth. Hmm. And I just think that's often in my experience, that's one of the least innocent desires out there. You know, usually we want the truth on certain conditions. Like the the great moment in the Phaedo when all the arguments for the for the soul's immortality fall apart, and 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 Socrates basically says was like, look, I, I, it's very sweet of you, but don't do therapy on me anyway. Care more about the truth than you care about Socrates, and that's a way of honoring actually the specificity of the connections they had to one another. But I think unearthing the the desire for truth from a lot of the forms that that hijack it is very hard. And this is what so this that's the difference between Augustine and Plato on the one hand and a Descartes on the other hand. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's not comfortable. And I think with truth, goodness, or beauty, to actually encounter them requires a great deal of humility. I feel a better term in there is almost humiliation. Yeah. Like it's a good rejection of my truth, goodness, and beauty. Yeah. And my truth is a lot more comfortable than maybe the truth in that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, I am amazed at how fast this hour has gone. But I want to ask, what are you working on now? Are you working on writing? Or are you just holding down teaching and defining what the Augustinian chair of Augustinian studies at an Augustinian university yeah. should do? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I'm holding down anything these days. Uh, I am working on some writing. I'm about halfway through it, which are I would I I I, I there are a series of short essays, but they're more like reflections, and some of them are are quite sort of experimental. Um, it's the my the tentative title is debriefing Augustine essays and inventions. And it really is my way of debriefing myself. I've been thinking about Augustine for 40 years. I owe him a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the takeaway on some issues? So there's short issue essays, and they're on taught themes like death, sex, politics, God, um, light stuff, time. Uh, yeah, and 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 they're and they're made to be. Sh they're short, so it doesn't take very long to read a chapter. You can read it in um, any order you want. Though uh, for me there is a they do have a connection as essays, and this will be I'm relatively confident uh, the last book I will write on Augustine, not because there isn't more to write. It's just I I know I won't I don't have much more to say. Hmm. Uh, so this is a chance, and and, I'm, and it's not. I mean I I think it will be intellectually um engaging i hope but i'm not writing it so much like an academic book uh the apparatus of footnotes and stuff i mean i i try to suggest where i'm grateful to other people yeah. but it really is a sense of like you know wh what's the augustine that i've that i that still puzzles me that i feel like i know the augustine i know a bit better and it's connected up with um I think my own Christianity, uh, 
which is complicated. I mean, in ways I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm more uh, impressed with the connection to Plotinus and the Platonists than I think Augustine ultimately came to believe. I mean, I think he, he, he certainly acknowledged the debt. I, I think a lot of the, I think particularly the contrast between the, the early Augustinian tradition and the Platonist tradition I continue to 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 see my own struggles as reflected in like you know what does Augustine what does Augustine feel he can take and feel he cannot take from the from the from Plato and Plotinus. So um, I, I, it's not like the, the essays aren't a treatise on that, but that's a background uh, of like I, there, there's part of me that's as pagan as it, as I am Christian. And, you know, and I, I got there's certainly an Augustinian tradition that tells me, like, you better get those two things straight. Mm. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I may be too late for me for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds interesting. Do you know when you hope to have that out? Um, I'm hoping to have the draft done um, within the next four or five okay. months. Then I think I need to send that out to some friends. Like I may actually engage Lewis to say, like, how crazy is this, guys? You know, should I just put it up on academia.edu or should I actually get to try to get the thing published? Um, so I, it, it's been I've been working on it on and off for the past five years. There's been a lot going on um, for why it's taken that long. But now I'm I'm kind of. Um, I think I'm ready to get back into it and finish it off. Great. Well, I look forward to it. I remember last time we talked, you made a similar comment. You were, yeah, I'm still wrestling through how Christian and pagan I am and yeah. Catholic and what that. So it's good to know uh, you're still wrestling. Yeah, I don't know that that's going to end. So, uh, and so and certainly the essays won't be resolution, but. But they are, uh, but they are, you're right. I mean, I, I am more interested in just describing realities that we share. Like, yeah. uh, I, I, like the chapter I just, I, I most recently wrote on death. It's not connected to it. Like a friend of mine took his own life uh, mm. uh, a couple of months ago. I, within, between 2016 and now, uh, my, both my parents died. Uh, a best friend died. It's like, I say like, these are, you know, and, and Augustine actually is a thinker who who thinks in and around these losses. Yeah. Um, and I th and why would we think that that a philosophical life could do can can avoid some confrontation with the fundamental truths of our own mortality? Right. And I think it's what brings a lot of people into philosophy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. It's what brought me into philosophy was my brother's own suicide, and part of what got me to stay with Augustine is I started reading the city of God and I was like why does he open the city of God with thoughts on suicide and Lucretia yeah uh, yeah, yeah. there's things going on here yeah yeah no he's a philosopher he, he's a thinker who, who takes very seriously the possibilities of human despair yeah and in a in a helpful way if we're gonna look at him in this platonic tradition embodiment in grief is a huge the validity of those things yeah. a huge contribution yeah 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 yeah, yeah no absolutely. absolutely yeah so it's helpful not to see it clearly well good i look forward to, to reading that my last question if there's work on augustine 
that we should read more? What do you think we should pay more attention to? Okay, so I'm going to make one recommendation, and I okay. even have an illustration. Um, this is uh, Kate Cooper's Queens of a Fallen World, The Lost Women of Augustine's Confessions. And it came out this year, 2023, with basic books. Um, I, I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And what she does so beautifully, uh, I mean, the, the, the Lost Women of Augustine's Confessions includes the mother of his child, mm-hmm. the woman that he was contracted basically to marry that he he decided um not to do to do it um and monica those are the three that are that i i'll emphasize now there's also the empress justina uh which gets more the political thing what i love about the book is um she gives you a very vivid sense of the roman context for love and marriage that augustine struggled with yeah. And like, I think one of the most important passages in all of Augustine is in the Confessions at 61525, where he just describes in a paragraph the effect of sending the mother of his child away. And also, I think the love of his life. I mean, I, you know, I, it's taking me, uh, I, you know, 40 years of readerly you know, attention to Augustine makes me feel like this was a wound. This wasn't a guy who had a lust problem. This is a guy who had. Um, a trust problem and he violated his own best intuitions and and it caused him great grief a a wound I think that he never really got over and of course this is important not simply because of his individual psychology because the impact he had on the evolution of western Christianity one thing I, I, I appreciated about Kate's work Kate Cooper's work is um my sense of like what it meant for her the mother of a child to be sent away what it meant for him to cancel the arranged marriage is much more concrete and vivid than i had before and so when i when you okay. so when you and i think it's i think in getting at augustine the deeper augustine you have to get at his profound you have to get at his profound love for women and also the misogyny that whether it's temperamental or cultural, it's 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 crucial for understanding the range of theological play and possibility and truth that he was willing to entertain in some sense advance. So this is a great book. It's an easy read. Um, it's well written and it's highly informative. So um, I knew you were going to ask this question. I thought, like, you know, what, what can I what can I really sensibly endorse uh, to the people that are listening to the podcast? And if, if this is the only thing they get out of it, like a good book recommendation, that's cool. I, I'd be happy. Good. good. Well, I'll check it out as well. And of course, I can recommend your own books, though I have not gotten to The Guide to the City of God. It's not on my immediate needs. Yeah, well, I think probably you could probably live a happy life and not get to it. But if you do, I would love to hear what you think. <laughs> I will. Well, good. I really appreciate you taking time to chat. It was a pleasure.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor James Wetzel. If you like the show or want to find out more, go buy his books, Augustine and the Limits of Virtue, Augustine, A Guide for the Perplexed, and Parting Knowledge, Essays After Augustine. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. As always, thanks for listening.